0: From PRX, this is Living on Earth I'm Steve Kerwood, A Goldman Prize winner says protecting nature is worth the ultimate sacrifice If no one is prepared to lay
1: their life down To fight to preserve modern nature To protect this planet To ensure that generation unborn Will come and have a safe and healthy environment If the world and the planet is now worth the battle
0: what else are you prepared to give your life up for? Also turning one of those big metal shipping containers into an indoor urban vegetable garden. It is basically a hyper-local
2: thing. The reason we keep the customers is it's a better product than what you can buy at, you know, pretty much anywhere. Basically what it comes down to is it looks better, it tastes better, and it's got more nutrients, and it feels better, it's got better texture. So that's kind of what people are buying.
0: We have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Republican National Convention is now in the history books. And for more, here's Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom.
3: The RNC this year was held against the backdrop of wildfires raging in California and Hurricane Laura battering the Gulf Coast. The types of natural disasters that scientists tell us are becoming more common and destructive with climate change. The threat of climate change, though, was barely mentioned in the primetime RNC speeches. Mr. Trump did talk about renewable energy before a small group of supporters at the convention in Charlotte, North Carolina. He explained the difference between himself and his Democratic
4: opponents. We've achieved American energy independence and we're now number one in the world by far. And I saw where... I saw where these phonies, you know, they want to end everything we've done. They want to end it. They want to go to wind. They don't even know if they want to go to wind. I think they want to just basically close up our country because they're taking away our strength. But they want to do something. But you don't have there is no such thing. Solar can not do it. I love solar. It's all fine. You know, very, very heavily expensive, very expensive. But they want to go to other forms of alternate, alternative energy. And I think that's okay. Except we don't have them. And it's not going to power these massive factories. So we need, and hydro I love. I, it's, it's one of my all-time favorites. Hydro, hydro I love, I have to tell you. That's the, the great dams. You don't see that too much. You know why the environmentalists say, you can't build a dam there. But now we can, because yes, we've, we done, can. we've done things uh, that nobody thought were possible. Like, example, uh, the Keystone Pipeline. We got that approved. The Dakota Access Pipeline, they were all bogged down, right? Right? Uh, God, I got it, For
3: more on the Republican National Convention, I'm joined now by Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Hey there, Peter. So what was your take on the RNC this year?
5: Or what didn't I see? Hi, Bobby. There's um, very little direct mention of environmental virtue in here. A lot of the attacks on past environmental policy and on uh, Biden and Harris's potential future environmental policy, dealt with excessive regulation, which, of course, was a big focus of the first term for Trump and Pence. Much of that was presented through a lobsterman, a logger, and a farmer who came on uh, almost ensemble form as the anti regulatory village people. Mm-hmm.
3: Right. Um, Yeah, there was a a lobsterman from Maine named Jason Joyce who used his time to talk about environmental extremists, in his opinion. He was really upset about um, the Obama administration setting aside ecologically sensitive Atlantic canyons where endangered whales and other species live, and he said that it affected his industry. It, It affected lobstering. Let's listen to him.
6: I make my living from lobster fishing, oyster farming, and providing eco tours, in the beautiful waters near Acadia National Park, where I have over 200 years of family history. I live on an island with 370 residents, and lobstering is how we provide for our families. Maine's lobstermen are true environmentalists. We practice conservation every day. If we didn't, we'd be putting ourselves out of business. Four years ago, the Obama-Biden administration used the Antiquities Act to order thousands of square miles of ocean off limits to commercial fishermen. They did it to cater to environmental activists. Although Maine's lobstermen don't fish there, Obama's executive order offended us greatly. It circumvented the Fisheries Council's input. President Trump reversed that decision, reinstating the rules that allow stakeholder input. And he supports a process that seeks and respects fishermen's views. As long as Trump is president, fishing families like mine will have a voice. But if Biden wins, He'll be controlled by the environmental extremists who want to circumvent long-standing rules and impose radical changes that hurt our coastal communities.
5: Of course, no self-respecting lobstermen or no self-respecting lobster would uh, find themselves in an area of seamounts and deep canyons. That's what that Obama-created national monument was for. One thing we didn't hear that we could have heard from the good captain is that there are multiple studies telling us that climate change and warming ocean waters could take lobsters completely off the menu in Maine, possibly within 30 years, as it's uh, largely already done in Long Island and southern New England. The convention also featured a dairy farmer complaining about regulations and a Minnesota timberman doing the same.
3: Right. The logger, his name is Scott Dane. Let's hear what he had to say.
6: Under Obama-Biden, radical environmentalists were allowed to kill the forest. Wildfire after wildfire shows the consequences. Managed forests, the kind my people work in, are healthy forests. Under President Trump, we've seen a new recognition of the value of forest management in reducing wildfires. And we've seen new support for our way of life, where a strong back and a strong work ethic can build a strong middle class.
5: Mr. Dane seemed kind of cheesed off by environmental regulation in in general. Another thing that was happening with forests at the time are those massive and tragic blazes out in uh, California. The prescription for solving them was reiterated this week by President Trump uh, when he once again said that all we needed to do to control massive wildfires is to rake the forest floor.
3: Hmm, yeah, that's uh, not a commonly held view from what I understand. Well, you know, Peter, last week we talked about the uh, Democratic Party platform and the fact that the Dems kind of hid their environmental ambitions there instead of putting them front and center in the primetime speeches. But the Republicans this week, they actually didn't put out a new party platform. And from what I understand, it's the first time since 1854 when the Republican Party was formed that they didn't put out a new platform. Instead, they decided to keep word for word the exact same party platform that they adopted in 2016. What do you make of that?
5: To me, the only thing you could make of that is that the Republicans don't see any platform problems that need fixing. That goes for the environment as well. Several times they um, bashed what they called the current administration in the platform, even though the current administration is the Trump administration when they meant to say the Obama administration.
3: Right. Yeah. It was rather confusing to read at some points. They did put out a, a 50 bullet point plan for the next term that included things like deregulation for energy independence and, and keeping our water and air crystal clear, as they call it, and uh, working internationally to clean up oceans. You know, from what I saw, these were literally one sentence long points. There was nothing to say how they plan on doing any of those things.
5: Right. No roadmap um, for seeing them through. Of course, if you have a platform not knowing whether or not you're going to maintain control of the Senate, that's an issue as well that uh, has to be uh, in the back, if not the front of everybody's mind. And uh, as far as crystal clear water goes, that's going to be harder to achieve if you're rolling back big sections of the Clean Water Act. As for energy independence, there's precious little mention of clean energy as a role to that, not just uh, coal and oil and gas.
3: Well, it was uh, an interesting week. In any case, what are your take-homes from it?
5: Well, a little uh, historical digression. Uh, Back in 2016, there was a guy destined to be a major environmental player who spoke for six minutes at the convention. That was a young congressman from Montana, former Navy SEAL and Eagle Scout. That's uh, Congressman Ryan Zinke. He uh, didn't speak about the environment. He spoke about the military. But uh, a few months later... He found himself as Trump's first secretary of the interior until parallel corruption scandals broke out about alleged cronyism and wild spending for things like $139,000 for new doors for the interior secretary's office. That's Ryan Zinke for you. Uh, He lasted a little less than two years. There's one other little irony that I think went largely unspoken in the Republican Convention. It was held in a beautiful venue called the Mellon Auditorium on Pennsylvania Avenue, right next to the uh, Trump International Hotel, by the way. It's a federal property, but it can be rented out by anyone in America. It was rented out by the Trump campaign. The landlords there are the environmental protection agency. It's in their building, and that building is named the William Jefferson Clinton Federal Office Building. That turned out to be a venue where the Trump campaign bashed the EPA and bashed every Democratic president in recent memory.
3: Mm, And of course, the William Jefferson Clinton building is probably more better known as former President Bill Clinton.
5: That would be President Trump's second favorite Clinton.
3: (laughs) All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much for watching these past two weeks and keeping us informed.
0: That's Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom speaking with Peter Dykstra. Coming up, thinking inside the box when it comes to growing fresh local food. Shipping container farms just ahead here on Living on Earth. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Industrial agriculture today is a resource-intensive endeavor, requiring big machines, plenty of land, water, and energy to produce much of the food on a typical American dinner table. And as the public trends more towards plant-based foods, some are thinking outside the box by bringing farms inside the box. By retrofitting old shipping containers with grow lights and hydroponic gear— what would take about an acre of land to grow vegetables such as lettuce can be fitted into just 8 by 40 feet. Living on Earth's Jay Feinstein and Ainsley O'Neill took a trip to Cornerstock Farms in East Boston, Massachusetts to find out more.
7: Your destination is on the right. The only other time I've been to East Boston was to go to the airport, so... I'm a little surprised at how busy it is. And I see these shipping containers, I mean, right in the middle of these houses and behind the auto body shop, but here we are.
8: You know, the funny thing is, a farm like this would not have even been legal until 2013 when Boston revamped its zoning code.
7: I didn't even know that someone would make a farm illegal.
8: Yeah, I know,
2: right?
7: Do you think that's the guy up front? Ah, yeah, I think so. He's a little less sunburnt than most farmers.
2: My name's Sean Cooney. Uh, and I'm the partner and owner of Cornerstock Farm in East Boston, Massachusetts. And we started in 2014. So uh, this is it. So we uh, this, there's not too much to it. I mean, it's basically, you've seen the whole of the, the farm by walking the 120 feet or so. That's amazing. Um, and we've got four units that are, you know, basically growing lettuce year round. And, uh, you know, that's it. You want to go inside? Yeah, we'd love to. Cool.
7: Well, it's definitely a few degrees cooler in here,
8: and these lights are blinding. I mean, these red and blue lights, these LEDs—something like out of a sci-fi movie.
7: Are those the plants in those columns all up and down?
2: Right. You really need just an industrial area. You need a you know a place where you can basically bring as many plants as possible into as little amount of square footage as possible so we kind of look at it as cubic feet in a real farm you talk about square footage and acreage here it's really cubic feet we've got so many feet on the floor but we plant plants up to 10 high so show us around so okay so basically you walk in and we're in a complete self-contained farm we've got the climate control system and a lot of fans keep the air moving so that everything's happy and the plants get a little bit of stress. Which if you just leave them without any movement, the plants actually get weak.
7: Wait, so they need exercise. They're lifting weights, they're jumping jacks, they're...
2: Pretty much, yeah. It's stressing, the plants, is what it's really called in the industry, but they do need to be moved around for them to have a good texture to them so that the cell walls are thick enough so that it's not just eating uh, a piece of water.
7: And you can maintain it all using a box on the side of the
2: container. Yeah, there's a tiny little antique-style computer that's, that's very industrial. And uh, you can log into it from the outside world. If you want to fiddle around with settings or just check on everything, you can do that from home. You can do it from vacation. You can do it, uh, whatever. So how did you get into this? I started three software companies and sold them. And I started doing business plans looking for the next thing and one was the ag tech farming. This kept coming up as something that was interesting. Dug a little further, did a little more business planning, and uh, it won. My wife and I self-funded it, and we have loans, and the loans are from the US Department of Agriculture, like a regular farmer would get his loans. So what are you growing in here? Well, mainly we grow lettuce, that's our business, and we've grown tomatoes, we've grown lots of flowers, we've grown all kinds of herbs. And and God knows what else. But it turns out that as a business, you have to sell what people buy every day. And what people buy every day is our greens, even our restaurants. That's what they want.
7: Well, so you sell to individuals and you sell to restaurants.
2: Uh, We sell sell both. We sell um, probably 50-50. We sell to a bunch of nice restaurants in the Boston, downtown Boston area. We deliver to them. And we sell to regular consumers,
8: but still, most of your customers are they still in Boston? Because that's hyper local. When you think about it, you're oh, yeah. growing in Boston, you're selling in Boston.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, no, they're all in the metro Boston area. A lot of Cambridge customers, but it is yeah, you know, it is basically a hyper local thing. The reason we keep the customers is it's a better product than what you can buy at you know pretty much anywhere. Basically, what it comes down to is it looks better, it tastes better, and it's got more nutrients, and it feels better. It's got better texture. So that's kind of what people are buying.
8: Tell us more about hyperlocal. It's sort of a buzzword nowadays. People say it's better for your health, it's better for the environment. Um, Is that true?
2: Mm, Pretty much, yeah. It's true, and it's got a downside. The downside is it's probably a little more expensive also. Um, But it is, any vegetable, once you harvest it, loses somewhere around 7% of its nutrient value every day from the day they're harvested, up to a point and they lose a lot of their texture and, and their, their attractive qualities. What we sell is still alive. We sell the, the lettuces with the roots on them. You get a much better life cycle out of them that way. So we're they're, they're basically not losing any nutrients and they maintain their freshness. If you ever had the experience of buying a nice box of brand name cut lettuce in a plastic bin that looks great and you get it home and a, two days later, it smells funny and you've got black sludge on the bottom, That won't happen with what we're selling.
7: I was wondering because there are times when I have bought, like you said, cut lettuce from the grocery store and it's a race against the clock.
2: I mean, that's one of our biggest customer satisfaction points and our selling points was that you get to use it all. It's not like you're buying a $10 package of lettuce and using $3 worth. You know, with us, you buy a $10 package of lettuce and you get to eat $10 worth of lettuce. But you can go on vacation, you can go on a business trip. And you can come back and still have something in there that's perfectly palatable.
8: What type of environmental cost are you saving?
2: Regular farming is a grow as much as you possibly can and sell it when it's ready, as fast as you can. We're a non-demand business because we don't grow extra. We're growing pretty much what we're selling, give or take a little bit. You know, And, and one of the things we definitely don't do is waste any water. No matter how good you are at growing outside, you could never grow with the kind of water use we have I mean, we use say the thousand plants we grow in one unit we probably use 25 gallons of water a week so you couldn't water your patio plants for a week with 25 gallons and keep them alive so what
7: was the inspiration behind deciding to build a farm inside and i don't mean in a greenhouse and i don't mean in a window box or anything like that? What was the shipping container idea?
2: Part of it is it's a durable, clean environment that can put up with the stresses that farming puts on a space. And basically there's all kinds of stuff that goes on in here that would basically bring down a building. You know, it would ruin the walls. You couldn't clean it. If something ever happened in here, we had, uh, some kind of a mold infestation or something. You could shut everything off and you can sanitize this place just like you would uh, the clean room in a restaurant or a food processing center. To what extent do you use chemicals in here? We do use them once in a great while. We can't be organic because we don't grow in dirt. It's a water-based environment, but we adhere to the organic principles. Generally, the way we control any kind of a pest in here, it's kind of preemptive. We basically use ladybugs. We ship them in once a month or so and sprinkle them around, and they pretty much do the uh, the policing of any kind of bugs in here. And when we have had to use something, it's called chrysanthemum oil.
7: May I ask? Yeah. May I try some of the lettuce? Sure.
2: <laughs> okay, well, we harvested some. What is this? This is the Salanova red butter. There's not many people who actually have favorites, but if they do, this is the one that they want. So go ahead. Have a taste.
7: Sure looks like normal lettuce. <laughs> that is really good. I don't mean to sound incredulous, but I'm a little incredulous. Might I have another one? Sure. All right. Finish them off.
8: It's very green.
7: It's very green. I'm going to
8: try this too. What? What? Wow. You can taste like it was grown right here. It was.
7: It's definitely fresh. I mean, you literally just clipped it right in front of us, but it's, that's, I've never had lettuce like this. This I would eat on its own. I don't even feel like I need to be, you know, putting salad dressing on it or, oh, I need a
2: crouton or something.
8: And this is a weird thing to say too, but it kind of feels alive.
2: You guys want to try something a little, a little further on the edge? This is called a wasabi arugula. And I grow it for, for a couple of restaurants, and they use it instead of wasabi on their crudo and their raw fish and their raw meats. So here, take a leaf of that and be prepared.
8: <laughs> All right, I'm prepared. I don't know what to expect here. It does taste just like wasabi, but it, it's a little milder, but I love it, actually.
7: I myself am uh, a little terrified. I have an all-time low tolerance for wasabi, well, wow. it is a bit much for me, but it is really good. And I'm a little astonished that it's not coming in those tiny little balls of green mush.
2: It's actually a real arugula, and it just happens to have that flavor profile. It's not related to wasabi at all. It's the same as the arugula you buy in the plastic package, family-wise.
7: Well, I, I know that some people will call arugula rocket, and that was certainly you know a blast off of flavor. <laughs>
2: Yeah, this is much closer to the rocket family part of arugula than the general arugula you buy in the store.
7: So what do we owe you now? Ten bucks for the lettuce and how much for the arugula?
2: uh, Ten bucks for the lettuce and the arugula is free. Well,
7: I think we're all ready to head out. Uh, Thank you again for showing us around. You're welcome.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. I appreciate everyone's time. That's
0: Living Honors Ainsley O'Neill and Jay Feinstein with farmer Sean Cooney at the shipping container called... Cornerstock Farms. The winners of the Goldman Environmental Prize each year are nothing if not courageous. Many risk their lives to protect endangered species, rare natural resources, and indigenous land rights. Lawyer and human rights advocate Alfred Brownell of Liberia is the 2019 African Goldman recipient for his work to save over 800,000 acres of Liberia's Upper Ghanaian rainforest from development into massive palm oil plantations. This rainforest and carbon sink is the largest in the region and nicknamed the lungs of West and North Africa. It's a biodiversity hotspot and home to many indigenous people. Attorney Brownell's conservation efforts nearly cost him his life as he battled Liberian government officials and the palm oil company, Golden Viroleum Liberia. And after he found a way to block the financing of the project, he was forced to flee with his family to the United States, where he is now serving as a distinguished scholar at Northeastern University School of Law in Boston. Alfred Brownell, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You've risked your life to protect this forest. Please tell us why you are willing to risk everything to guard it against the palm oil plantation, folks. What more of an honor it is
1: to fight for this planet, to fight for this forest, to fight for a way of life of people who are preserving it. It's a life worth giving. If no one is prepared to lay their life down, to fight to preserve Mother nature, to protect this planet, to ensure that generation unborn will come and have a safe and healthy environment and clean water and soil that is not poisoned by agrochemicals and species in the democene that are protected that allow for generation unborn to perpetuate and continue yourself. If you are not able to give your life for that, then I don't know what cause you're able to stand up for. So I think I was always prepared to give that life, and even now I'm prepared to do that.
0: Locally, in Liberia, why is the conservation of the upper Ghanaian forest essential to the preservation of the local people who are there, the, the, the indigenous folks who are there in their culture? If you flew over Liberia, all you see is the vast
1: expanse of forest. It's like you are flying over an ocean of trees, grain and cover, it's actually one of the wonders of the world to just see a continuous span of trees going over. And all that one will feel and think is that these are just trees, and below them, these are just animals. But the forest is also the home to indigenous people. It represents their history, their culture, their tradition, their way of life. They refer to the forest as their supermarket. It's where they go and get the food. The first the forest has their pharmacy. This is where they go and harvest medicinal plants. The first the forest has their universities. This is where they teach the young people about the way of the tribes and the culture, how to become farmers and sustainable farmers, how to develop indigenous business enterprises. So over the years, they've learned how to coexist their livelihood with nature in a very sustainable way. That's why this forest is important. But much more than that, this is the last refuse of what West Africa once used to look like. If you went back into times in West Africa, it was completely green across the entire region. Completely green. It was completely blanketed in green forests. The only portion of that blanket of forest in that entire region is what we now have in Liberia. It's the only intact forest. In other countries, they are all fragmented. So that's why it's important to protect these forests. It's the largest carbon sink in all of North and West Africa.
0: So when you got concerned about this in a public way, what happened when you started speaking out against the Golden Brolian uh, Liberia company? These are the folks that want to do uh, palm oil plantations and you uh, used your training as an attorney to to launch a legal advocacy campaign against that firm. What happened to you? <laughs> Well, of course they were
1: not happy. I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar investment that has come. And um, the government of Liberia had signed away a massive amount of land. Think about that. 350,000 hectares of forest land. That's almost like, almost uh, 800,000 hectares of land to this company. Um, the government had not consulted the communities. The government had not even gone to do any kind of mapping of the land area. You know, it's how, you know, sometimes elites in many other countries, you know, don't have respect for locals who have lived around this land and just give her this land to this company. And they went ahead and, you know, said, well, we have authority from your government and we're going to take the land. And so they evict folks and clear away the land. And so when my attention was drawn to what was happening and I went and I saw what has happened, I was shocked because I have seen entire towns and villages completely bulldozed by these companies. I have seen streams and creek poison. I have seen people, shrines, religious sites, their gods, desecrated. I have seen people, burial grounds of their great warriors, their tribal chiefs, those who established their towns and villages. And, like in the US, it's like talking about someone going in and desecrating the graves of what's their first president? George Washington. George Washington. And I'm wondering what the Americans would say about that. Or it's like to the African American, someone going in and trying to desecrate the grave of Martin Luther King. What would they say about that? This is what these companies were doing to those people their entire history, their entire value, their way of life, their culture, their very essence. What made them indigenous people was under threat and attacked by the spam companies. So what did you do? So I had to act. So the first thing we did was, well, we felt maybe this was being done out of ignorance. Maybe there wasn't an awareness. The government didn't know about this. So at their local levels in their regions, we informed the local authorities, government officials. We moved them to the cities. We went from ministries and agencies of the government to complain. We organized massive press conferences to draw attention, no one cared. They were in deal with the companies and was taken care of the destruction.
0: So we're talking about the motivation of money here. Absolutely. This was not a
1: venture that was intended to fail. It was too big to fail. This was intended to transform Liberia into a desert of oil palm. So how to find a way to organize. The plan was to challenge just the grant of the rights on a basis that the government of Liberia had no authority to give lease whole right to a transnational corporation on land that indigenous people had existed on and occupied even before the existence of Liberia.
0: But how do you stop that? I mean, if the government is gonna rule on any complaint that you bring forward, they're in charge of this process. Absolutely. Given how the government was involved in this process, and given that they had
1: ignored all of the pleas that we made, we felt that if we had gone to court, we probably wouldn't have prevailed.
0: So, what's the answer?
1: And then a friend of mine said, Well, you know, Coding Verodum is a member of an international consortium called the Round Table on Sustainable Palm Oil which is a certification body to ensure that palm companies will engage in the
0: sustainable production and marketing of oil palm. So your strategy is this palm oil company needs to certify their palm oil as sustainable because there are great concerns about this from Indonesia to West Africa. And so you went to this certification agency to tell them, "Uh uh-uh, this ain't. Sustainable.
1: But certification is not just about a labor that we give to them. You have to understand what that labor means to the companies that are involved in the production.
0: Okay, what does it mean?
1: Because given what has happened in South Asia, given the alarming nature of how palm oil companies had operated in Indonesia and Malaysia, and the impact on the forest and the species in the orangutan, it's creating an alarm, it created a concern among activists, environmentalists, and social activists, and among consumers, and the demand for more sustainability. So it meant that many palm companies were not even having the financing to engage in production and to engage in the marketing. So they needed this labor to show to the banks, to investors, to shareholders, to their suppliers, to the consumers, that indeed they can get the financing to do this. And so... We filed a complaint. We actually said, we are open to an independent assessment and verification of the allegations we made.
0: And they took the bait. Ooh, so yes. they came and investigated.
1: Of course.
0: So and they, they found?
1: And they found that we were right. Every single bit. This is very important for our audience to understand what this is. Because sometimes many folks will pitch this as development. How come poor villagers living in misery and poverty, we have concerns about a multi-billion dollar investment coming to that communities. Why are they opposing that? Don't they want a better way of life? But What many people don't understand is how this occurs on the ground. So imagine Gordon Verheerden, for example, a multi-billion dollar, the second largest palm person in the world, going to poor villages. These villagers, before the palm came, had their own palm they had an indigenous palm they had their food crops and the company wanted that so the women for example had planted oranges that they would sell every year during the harvest an orange tree would produce anywhere from between 8 to 12 bags of oranges a bag of orange would sell for 10 US dollars so if a lady was able to harvest a tree of oranges and had 12 bags it meant that she had 120 U.S. data in her pocket. She would have that to support she and her family and her kids. The oil palm companies came, and they didn't want that. They took away that tree. And guess how much they paid? This one? Um, nothing. 20 U.S. data per tree. Per tree. Not even the economic or market value. So what development is that that will further impoverize people who already, out of their bootstrap, have engaged into entrepreneurial activities? And so we have to act. And so when those were established, the round of Asuna Palm where Rodeman said, you have to stop further clearing, further development, and sit down and negotiate with these villagers.
0: We're speaking with attorney Alfred Brownell, Goldman Environmental Prize winner from Liberia. We'll continue with his story of protecting West Africa's largest old-growth rainforest after the break. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and United Technologies, combining a passion for science with engineering to create solutions designed for sustainability in aerospace, building industries, and food refrigeration.
7: Jenny, as you know, in order to record interviews from home, I have to sit in the most soundproof place I can find, which is my closet. So I'm now painfully aware that some of my shoes are majorly worn down. Oh, man. Must be all those socially distanced walks. Yes, exactly. What do I do?
3: Well, Ainsley, have you looked into our sponsor, Thousand Fell? Thousand what? Thousand Fell. They make comfy sneakers out of recycled plastic bottles, and even after being made into shoes, they're 100% recyclable. Plus,
7: they're leather-free and vegan. Okay, tell me more.
3: These kicks are sleek and stain-proof, and they kick odors thanks to natural materials like aloe
7: vera, coconut husk, and sugarcane. Ooh, sounds delicious. I'm sold. Where do I go? Find Thousand Fell shoes at thousandfell.com.
3: That's T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D-F-E-L-L.com. And after you check out, be sure to mention Living on Earth.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We continue our conversation now with Alfred Brownell, the Goldman Environmental Prize winner from Africa who saved West Africa's largest rainforest from palm oil development. In the middle of the fight, the palm oil company allegedly tried to have attorney Brownell killed. They tried to to
1: assassinate me, Um, you know, um, the private securities.
0: This is very emotional. Tell me this story. What happens? Talk to me about the day that you understood that the assassins were coming for you. What happened that day?
1: You really want to hear this story? Yes, people should know. It's very personal. It's very personal. But you know, as a defender, I also know that there are many others who were not lucky like me to be sitting down before you to tell this story. Many of my people, the communities that I come from, as environmental and land-right defenders, have paid the ultimate price and bowed and gone to see their ancestors, people like Bertha and others, Ken Sarawuiwa and others, who have died. And so in as much as this is very painful, I've actually made a commitment that I can be their voice to keep echoing or what, what this really is, the danger that the defenders are facing. So as we know, they were very angry. Um, now they have the stop order, and the round table on sustainable palm oil had instructed them to sit down and negotiate, develop a work plan, and obtain the consent of communities. Um, so they figure out that, well, this certification body is based in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur. We are in Liberia, in remote villages. We can ignore what they said and continue to do this. So part of our job was to investigate their compliance with this order. So when they told them to stop, they did not stop. They continue to take the land. They build much more strong relationship with the government. They pressure the government to put more pressure on us. So that's where the trust started coming in from the government to us. That's where we're being labelled as anti-country, anti-development, anti-investment. My very citizenship was being questioned. I was not a patriotic Liberian. How dare I challenge an investment that will build the infrastructure and generated revenue, and created employment. But we kept reporting back to the certification body that Gordon Virolam was not following the order. And so they organized the first fact-finding mission ever done by the Rantons of Snow Palms to a country to ensure that one of its members was actually following their instructions. So when the team came to Liberia, we took them to a place called tajuan in Sino County, it was in fact an area where after the stop order was issued, Gordon Farriden had identified that they would build a mill. It was on a hill, which was referred to as Palo Hill. This was a shrine, a religious site of the global people in Tajuan, the indigenous people, who every year would go and pray and pay homage to their ancestors. It was so revealed, it was so sacred. And this was where the company decided that they would make it the site for their mills. And so the local decided to show this to the fact for animation. So we went in and we proved we actually met the ice-moving equipment that were tearing down these shrines. And when I turned around I look at these community the people, some folks just dropped on the soil. People were just crying. They were just crying. They just couldn't believe that their religious side, their shrine, had been completely torn apart. So, unknown to us, while we were doing that inspection and assessment, Gordon Verodium and maybe some actors in the government had decided that, well, we had already gone too far. And that would have been the last day I was taking my breath. And so, on our way back, as we came out of the operational area, we entered a town called Sunwa Town. We came across a group of men and there was a massive roadblock. They had logs on the road. And then uh, our cars were all surrounded by these men and they were going around shouting, where's the lawyer? Where's this lawyer? We are looking for Brunel. Where's the lawyer? They were looking. They were searching for me. And one of the guys said, yes, Brunel. And then there was a shout from the crowd. They were so happy that they found their prayer. And then... You know, they started threatening and trying to open the car doors, trying to punch the tire, knocking the glass. These men were all dressed in the company uniform. They had the coats. They had the working tools from the company. And they started dancing. Well, today is the last day. They were happy. Then I noticed that some other folks were sharing alcohol. So folks started to drink. They started to beat drums. And then some post started to put chalk. It turned into a war dance in Liberia. They have the traditional war dance where the tribes would do. You put chalk on your face. Chalk on your face. And uh, some of the leaders came to the car and said, well, you know, today is going to be your end. You're never going to stop this company anymore. You know, we are going to to eat your heart. We're going to take off your heart and eat it. And uh, then someone said, in fact, my boss is waiting for your score. You know, he's going to turn into a mug. He's going to drink his palm wine from your skull. And i just being taunted back and forth as they were dancing. And uh, it was not easy. The colleagues who were in my car had all, like, given up. Um, some of the folks in the vehicle had already fainted. So I didn't know what to do. I just kept praying what would happen. And I was just waiting for my time. Then they said, well, let's get the chief. Now, this local chief was actually on the side of the company. We knew that he was one of the person who was being paid by the company. It meant that if he gave his order, it meant that that was the end for us. So they went and they brought the chief. And he reached to my vehicle and he knocked my windshield and said, roll down and I roll down. And the chief said, are you Mr. Brunel? I said, yes, I am, sir. He looked at me and he said, this is what want to kill you. But well, I'm the chief. I know how this going to happen. And he turned around and said... <laughs>
6: <laughs> he
9: told them, he told them, I'm not going to let you kill him. <laughs> I'm not going to let you kill him. <laughs> this blood must not waste all my land. <laughs> This blood must not waste on my land. (laughs) If you want to kill him, take him to another town, but I am not going to allow you to kill him, and this blood will not be on my land. (sighs) Then a young man who stood by him was very angry. Then he assaulted the chief and hit the chief. Then some of the young people from the village got angry that the chief had been assaulted, and there was conflict. The chief said, oh, so you insulted me. Then I'm going to remove the roadblock and this is where i going to go. And, you know, they went and was fighting over the laws, tried to move that.
1: And then we managed to flee the area. And we went to another village where we were stopping, a place called Butor, where we started the original campaign. And the communist guys tried to chase out there, and the Butor people came and said, we're not going to allow you to touch our lawyer. We we'll stayed there for like five days, protected by the indigenous people. Every night they moved me from one hut to the other hut. In the night, people who don't know who they were would come with just like, asking questions, trying to locate me. But the tribes protected me throughout that time. And then they found a way to provide safety along the road back to the city. And we went, we came back to the city, we complained. We issued press statement. Couple of months later, my office strangely bucklerized. I had electronic gadgets in my office. No one bothered to take them away. There were DVDs and phones, cell phones. I even had some money, some uh, petty cash on my decks. No one took the money. What did they steal? Documents, financial records. Then I started observing strange vehicles following me. And then um, five years of bank records from my organization was taken. There was stories written to the media saying that uh, I was corrupt, that I was using donor money to create slush funds for myself. But I continued to persevere. And to be honest with you, I felt that it was worth the fight It was worth the battle. And like I told you earlier on, even if I face that same attack again, I would go on. I'm embarrassed when I have to tell this story. Why? Because it makes me look like I'm weak.
0: Courage is weak,
1: but I feel that it's important for the world to hear it. Because like I said before, I'm lucky to live, but I want the rest of the world to know what this is about. That an ingredient that... You wouldn't even notice if you walk into your supermarket or to your grocery store, or you bought a bottle of soap, or you bought Chewis, or you went into McDonald's and you bought your fast food, or you went to Kentucky Fry and took your fries and your chickens, or if you're someone who loves lipsticks, who never buying lipsticks, or you who love ice creams, you have no idea that oil palm is all over you it's all over you. And while you are enjoying this, both beautifying yourself and enjoying the flavor that it brings and the happiness and joy that it brings to you and your family on this side of the world, it was raining ruin and destruction on another side of the world. So while you are beautifying yourself as a lady, there were women who were being flogged, who were being stripped naked and thrown in prison. There were the history, there was a the culture, there was a the religion, there were the shrines of people who were being desecrated. This is what the palm oil was doing to that country.
0: So ultimately, of course, you felt that you had to leave, that it was just too much for your family and yourself, and you came to the United States. But I imagine that the Liberian government is still trying to pursue this deal, uh, still trying to pursue palm oil development and other threats to the upper Ghanaian forest. So now, from here in America, what, what kinds of legal or political strategies do you think could be used to, to protect the forest now from this development?
1: Well, um, so sometimes folks believe that they are threatening you. And maybe that's how the government of Liberia and the Palm Communists felt. When I left Liberia, they felt they had won a victory. we have now removing and we can do business as usual. But I think now they realize it was the biggest mistake in their life. Because It was here in the U.S. It was here at Northeastern University School of Law. When I came, Northeastern University offered me a refuge and gave me a platform, a deck to continue my work in dignity. That's the idea. When you go into exile, you lose everything. I left Liberia just in one suit the day my office was attacked by the police on the raid. I was not able to go back to my office, neither to my home. My family left in just the clothes they had on. I had to grab my kids. Friends have to help me to take my wife and my kid along with me all of the country and quickly fly me into a third country before I came to the U.S. But here in the U.S. in the Northeastern, I had a platform. I had a group of students who was involved in my research, who were supporting me with research. I had professors who were assisting me. I had an office. I had 24-hour electricity. I had 24-hour fast-speed internet.
0: So you can tell the story.
1: So I could sit down and tell the story. I could sit down and continue to put pressure on the certification body. It was here year that when the company launched, it appealed against our complaint that they lost. It put a lot of pressure on them. And so it was in August of 2018, a year and a half later, of sustained engagement, both supporting the communities directly in Liberia from a platform here in the U.S., using WhatsApp and other social media, working directly with the coalition Health office, that we're able to counter the appeal, and we won. And it is from here that we'll continue pursuing those cases to make sure that they are not going to take away that for us.
0: Alfred Brownell is the founder and lead campaigner of Green Advocates International and recipient of the African part of the Goldman Environmental Prize. Professor Brownell, congratulations. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Since this story first aired last year, Syme Darby, one of the two companies Alfred Brownell was fighting against in Liberia, has pulled out of the country. That leaves more than a half million acres of rainforest undeveloped for now. Locals are working to permanently protect the forest for communities in the region. As for Mr. Brownell, he is now a visiting faculty member at Yale Law School and working on climate change issues in West Africa. by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Bobby Baskin, Jenny Dory, Jay Feinstein, Anne Flaherty, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Lori Suzuki, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Liererstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcast. We tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.